Welcome to the global headquarters of one of the world's best capitalized banks in the world's best capitalized country. We have an interactive session for you today. You can use the button on the website to ask some questions. Well, we're going to start out and say the first half of 2022 was one of the worst years for U.S. stocks and bonds in 20 year, 50 years. Uh, U.S. inflation is still over 8% and the Fed has hiked rates already by 150 basis points and the market's close, pricing in close to another 350 basis points. High inflation, higher rates, an ongoing war and fears of recession have all hurt equities and uh, both the MSCI world and the S&P 500 are down about 18% year to date. And of course, this uh, what's been special this year is that bonds have also been hurt. So there have been few places to hide uh, except the broad commodities space has done well. In fact, the broad commodities index is up 23% year to date. Well, volatility is likely to remain high and this environment can feel overwhelming for many investors. And we've been talking to them around the world about what to do. And I am so pleased to be joined today with a cavalcade of investment heavy hitters, Tom Flory, Jason Dreho, and Caroline Simmons. And we're gonna start with Tom, and we're gonna talk about the economic outlook for inflation and interest rates. So Tom, US, Eurozone, UK inflation, all unexpectedly increased yet again to multi-year highs in May. What should we expect next? What about this peak inflation stuff? Hi, Mark. Uh, hi, everyone. Um, let's talk about and have a view on the last 30 years before we dig into the next uh, three months, please. So let's show the first slide, please, where I show uh, 30 years of inflation. And as you can see, clearly, there is a, a global trends overall times in inflation and there is local issues which drive inflation in one or the other region up. I show here United States, United Kingdom, Euro area, but I could also show other regions would have a very similar picture. What we have seen now after the pandemic is that the global component uh, has been very strong and drove all the inflation rates up. What is the driver behind global inflation? There is um, trade frictions, supply chain disruptions, commodity prices being higher, and uh, to some extent also uh, prices for industrial goods that are traded globally. Uh, that's the uh, that's where it started, that inflation came higher, but now each region, each country has also very domestic components that come from tight labor markets, that come from um, <coughs> Um, uh, service prices that are high, uh, maybe local taxes that uh, play a role, uh, very different sources. And what we see is that uh, central banks struggle now keeping inflation expectations low just because international and domestic drivers are in combination with, with each other. Um, so 
for them, the biggest step and challenge is to stabilize inflation expectations. Our best guess is that eventually they will manage to do this. Let's have a look at the next slide, please. Um, so our expectation is after reaching 8%, there's um, probably an extended period where inflation stays around current levels before it drops again. There's different scenarios to this. We come to that at a later stage. What do we see right now as positive impulses that could bring inflation down? Uh, there is an inventory accumulation happening already, so um, prices co could come down for that reason. Um, there is uh, commodity prices, they are still high, that will drive inflation higher. Industrial goods are starting, uh, prices are starting to come down here a little bit. Government spending is going down, so the fiscal impulse component of inflation is coming down. So we see several aspects, but it's not fully convincing yet. Most investors probably need two or three inflation rates at the same level level or lower because before they start relaxing again. Okay, Tom. So you mentioned that, uh, you know, what the Fed has uh, said too is they need a couple of clear data points before they change their reaction function. What do you think is next for the Fed in the second half of the year? Uh, we can see this in the next slide. What the Fed funds rate currently at 150 to 175. That um, there's still another, let's say, 2% roughly to go. Our expectation, market expectations until mid next year. But at least market expectations are already uh, now stabilizing at these levels. What we have seen the last couple of months is that these expectations, where does the Fed end? Uh, always were creeping a little bit higher, were creeping a little bit higher, and as they crept higher, equities went down, dollar went up. So uh, the hope is with inflation starting to top out that this process stops now. We also see for the ECB uh, somewhere between one and a half and two percent target rate. For the UK, the market is um, still very split how far this can go, but definitely still a long way to go until we are at the top of the tightening, but markets are already adopting this and uh, playing the downside in these levels. Okay, so in this uh, uncertain environment, we always try to take it back, back down to fundamentals and what are the range of scenarios that can play out the stories that can drive the market, you know, in this case, in the second half of the year. So, Tom, can you lay, lay those out for our viewers a little bit? Yes, sure. Let's uh, take uh, first a view on the international drivers with the next slide, please. Uh, that's the dollar index. Here we have clearly been looking for a stronger dollar. Now the dollar is probably a bit wobbly around current levels and eventually will give way to other currencies uh, that are also hiking behind the Fed's action. So that means for the US, maybe a bit of relief for others, maybe a bit, um, uh, or for others also a bit relief because the strong, a weak, a stronger domestic currency 
brings inflation down. Let's go to the next slide, please. Commodity prices here, we have um, quite some certainty or feel quite certain that they will stay elevated. Longer term demand and supply mismatches. There has been underinvestment in many commodities and that's uh, that will is something which will keep at least that factor uh, at uh, higher levels. But now let's come to the central slide of this um, to prepare the ground for the Yasser class discussion, which are the four scenarios. From where we are right now, H1 in this um, stagflation, inflation, reflation scenario, with the on the horizontal side upside and downside in S&P 500 on the vertical changes in the 10-year yield so in the first half we had a strong rise of 10-year yields a strong fall of the S&P 500 what we are looking now with a 40% probability is that we're going into a soft landing meaning that um, inflation will stabilize that will give way to um, a moderation in these expectations for the fed will give way to somewhat stronger um, equity markets and the stabilization in 10-year rates reflation will be a surprisingly positive reacceleration of growth that would then uh, bring a lot of impulse into equity markets and uh, even make good for the uh, losses in the first half and even bring stronger gains. Nevertheless, there's a probability that equities could fall further in a slump, which is uh, if we talk about recessionary levels, the more likely one, meaning that with growth rates coming down, equities uh, falling further. We have also inflation and 10-year yields falling strongly so that we uh, fall back into a situation where you need to uh, re uh, give fresh impulses for the economy. The other one, stagflation, is one where inflation expectations stay elevated despite um, growth rates falling. That's probably the ugliest of all um, possible scenarios and for each of these scenarios we have obviously investment expectations we think there's a 30 percent probability for slump and a 20 percent probability for stagflation okay so what are you know what are we trying to do here so we've got a lot of questions like you do like uh how willing is NATO and the G7 going to be to take actions that lead to a resolution to the war in Ukraine? How long will China pursue a zero COVID policy? At what point will the Federal Reserve stop hiking interest rates to support the US economy? These are very important questions that even the people making those decisions do not have the answers to yet. And so what we're trying to capture on this page is the range of potential outcomes that their decisions can drive us towards. But what Tom has also pointed to is, you know, do you focus on the things that you cannot answer or do you start to look for the things where you can have a little more certainty? 
looking at things like the dollar and the extreme moves that it's had, looking at things like commodities and the supply and demand that has supported and we believe will continue to support the current pricing structure and uh, commodity regime. So that, that's what we're trying to do here. Now we're going to get a little more into it with Jason. And, you know, Jason, with these four scenarios in place, how do, how do investors start to kind of think about taking action in their portfolio? Sure, Mark. Um, so I think if, if we jump ahead a couple of slides, it sort of provides a little more meat to the kind of the scenarios outlining, uh, you know, the, the potential for the S&P of 100, where the 10-year Treasury yield can go. But I think, you know, starting with just looking at the probabilities we've assigned to these four different scenarios, you know, topping out at 40% for a soft landing, then 30% for slump and, and going on down the line. These are not high conviction probabilities. You know, there's no probable scenario where we're saying this is a 60 or 70% chance. You alluded to a number of issues that have to be resolved, Mark, in terms of, you know, the situation in, in Ukraine, the war there, China lockdowns, the Federal Reserve, there's uncertainty of how much, you know, they might hike and when they might pull back, when their pain point is gonna materialize. You can add to that questions about the consumer in the US and elsewhere, just how resilient will they will be, questions about the labor market. So there's a lot of uncertainty and it's hard to have high conviction on any one particular scenario, which is kind of leads to the probabilities we have, which means from a portfolio perspective and a positioning perspective, you really have to position or you shouldn't position for one particular scenario. You need to be sort of diversified, be prepared ideally to have a diversified, robust portfolio that can hold up across different scenarios and ultimately kind of build wealth over time. So I think that's kind of a starting point and sort of acknowledge that, you know, it's difficult to predict the path we're going for here. The second thing is to to sort of realize that or think through like, well, what, what are asset classes and opportunities that would be sort of attractive, at least in more than maybe one scenario? So I think a general theme that we would have right now is, you know, looking for higher quality assets, kind of safer assets, both in equities, but also in fixed income. Uh, those things tend to perform well in certainly downside scenarios like slump, like stagflation, um, but they can you certainly hold their own in, in the other scenarios as well. So that's a way to kind of also, you know, help you know kind of you know protect the portfolio uh then the the other thing that we sort of think about is you know for a lot of investors who've especially had maybe more risk on positions you know to protect against the uncertainty of the downside and in, in, in both cases in both the slump and stagflation our year-end price target for the s p 500 is 3300 so there's a 50% chance we're basically saying the markets will be down for the current level. So you want to be prepared for those situations. Uh, and But how you want to prepare for them is a little bit different, and we'll, we'll get into that shortly. At the same time, you know, it's basically we're saying there's a 50% chance between sort of a soft landing and reflation where the S&P 500 kind of stays, you know, where it is or rises even higher. I think it's even more extreme if you look at this, the, stump, the slump and the stagflation scenarios in terms of where the 10-year treasury is going. In stagflation, because inflation is sticky, uh, the Fed has to perhaps raise rates even more. We see the 10-year treasury yield rising to 4% in that case. In a slump, it goes down to to 1.5%. So very big difference in terms of the performance of fixed income, you know, in a year where it's been a challenging year in general. So you have to think about these kind of different, you know, implications as you kind of construct your portfolio. One would argue you don't want to necessarily have a lot of exposure to interest rate risk. The other, the slump would suggest that actually, you know, interest rate risk having exposure to sort of longer duration bonds could provide some protection. So I think you have to think through the implications of the, the different scenarios and be diversified because, you know, you know, each of these, you know, scenarios has some probability. And right now there's a lot of uncertainty which path it could take. All right. Thank you for that introduction, Jason. Now we're going to move to the client only portion of this. So if you're joining us from LinkedIn, 
thank you and make it a great day. All right, now Jason, let's get into uh, stagflation a bit more. And you know, if the if the Fed uh, remains behind the curve, you know, how should investors position for this? So I think there's a couple of things you want to do. And, and if you go to the next slide, it highlights sort of two kind of general ideas. One is to think about what we define as a liquidity strategy in our liquidity uh, longevity legacy framework. And the other is to think about other ways to diversify portfolios, um, including like looking into hedge funds. So the liquidity strategy, I think it's, it's a universal approach. It isn't specific to the stagflation idea, but it, now it's actually become a little bit more, I think, attractive for a lot of investors to think about it. And the idea is you want to build a liquidity portfolio that has allocations to cash, you know, safer, you know, you know, bonds, other instruments that are liquid, but high quality with the idea that they could fund your spending needs for a set of three to five years. And the benefits of doing that is that, you know, if you, you don't have to worry about spending needs for that horizon, you become less likely to want to sell equities or other risk assets at a point when they're, they're drawing down. Uh, you tend to make sort of less kind of reactive decisions and it means you're, sort of investment portfolio, your longevity portfolio, legacy portfolios can be stay, remain more committed. You also have some dry powder in this liquidity strategy. So if there's pullbacks and risk assets, you can, uh, you know, you can use that money to make investment decisions. But it's also in a strategy that right now can actually give you some return. And, and the chart on the, on the left of this slide kind of just illustrates it. It's the, the two-year treasury yield, um, which we can see for at least for two years, basically during the pandemic, it was 0% or very close to 0%. But very quickly, starting late last year into this year, it's risen quite a bit. And now it's over 3%. Um, and this impacted many other fixed income asset classes where even in higher quality corporate credit, the yields now are over 4%. So before you got very little from holding cash or cash-like securities, now you actually get at least you know, some income. So that, that also makes the strategy a little bit more attractive. So that's an approach that could benefit you during stagflation, but it's also something that could benefit you across multiple scenarios. Turning to the hedge fund argument, the thing that's really kind of appealing about that is in, in a stagflation environment, it's really difficult to find sort of portfolio diversifiers. One of the key attributes of stagflation is that you tend to get a situation where both equities sell off and bond yields rise, so bonds sell off as well. That's exactly what's happened for the first you know, four to five months of this year. So as a result, kind of standard diversified portfolios between stocks and bonds, they've suffered because both are down you know, double digits, 10% or more. Hedge funds you know, tend to have lower correlation with equities. They're, they're you know, kind of designed to provide sort of that alternative source of diversification. Um, so in an environment where bonds aren't doing their traditional diversification job, you can see that from hedge funds. And the chart on the right just shows you some of the performance uh, starting from January 1 until the end of May of different hedge fund type of strategies. And you see at the very bottom also how, you know, the NASDAQ, global equities, global bonds have done. So by and large, hedge fund strategies have held up much better. In some cases, they've been in positive territory, quite significantly positive territory, especially macro-oriented strategies. So if we get a stagflation scenario or if this sort of poor correlation between stocks and bonds persists, these hedge fund strategies you know, become really attractive diversifiers. And there's different things that you can do, look at relative uh, value, market neutral, but macro, global macro strategies in, in general, and in particular, tend to be quite attractive because they can work across different macro environments. Again, that makes it nice in a scenario or situation where we can't have high conviction. Um, they can be very nimble, so they don't have to play either higher or lower rates. They can sort of do either one. So that's something to consider to add diversification if stagflation ends up being sort of the base case scenario. All right, Jason, and what about the recession scenario? How are we thinking about that and investors who want a position for that? 
So I think you can do two things. You want, you want to sort of play sort of defense and offense. And starting on sort of the defense, we can go to the next slide. Uh, the idea is to provide and invest in both high quality assets, also a little more defensive assets. So, you know, this slide just illustrates two examples of that on the equity space. Uh, the chart on the left, you know, illustrates the performance of, you know, kind of high quality income paying stocks and how they performed in different environments, both across the, the business cycle from sort of the recovery stage, expansion, slowdown and recession. And this is the relative performance versus the MSCI world index. So it's not absolute returns. And you can see that on a relative basis, they've outperformed in both slowdown and recession scenarios. Um, so that kind of, you know, what you'd expect, you know, higher quality, a little more defensive assets, they're supposed to do better in those scenarios. And indeed, that's actually what's happened for the past, you know, 25 years on a global basis. Um, they also have the benefit, again, of giving you some income in an environment where, you know, investors want income, especially with inflation being at the current level it is. Another more specific sector that we like is healthcare. Uh, and again, it has attributes that are both defensive, but there's also some, some growth elements. But when we look historically, we can see it's also tended to outperform in recession periods. And that's illustrated on the chart on the right. You can see, for at least for the S&P 500 pharma companies and other healthcare companies versus the S&P 500, in those vertical bars that are shaded gray, those are recessions. And you can see the relative outperformance the blue line moving higher in those time periods. So this is one of our most preferred sectors because it has this uh, you know, attribute of being sort of defensive and also performing in these downturns. So these are ways to sort of, within the equity portfolio, tilt it in a way to you know, get sort of better relative performance uh, in a slump scenario. Another thing you can consider is, you know, not just play defense, but sort of play offense. The markets have been very volatile they're likely to stay volatile, at least for the summer, probably the rest of this year. So rather than sort of causing you to sort of freeze up, think about volatility as an asset class that you can take advantage of. Um, you know, you can sort of essentially harvest volatility by, you know, using you know, structured products, structured notes um, to, to sort of protect the downside, but also maybe capture or retain some, some upside scenarios. Uh, so that's another way to think about not just sort of, you know, kind of, you know, uh, kind of sitting on the sidelines, but use volatility to your advantage. Uh, if you use dynamic asset allocation, again, as the markets move a lot, you can be a little bit tactical, um, very difficult to call the markets, but also if you're not sort of sitting on the sidelines, there is opportunities to make adjustments as we move throughout this cycle as well. So think of volatility as something that you want to sort of proactively uh, attack as opposed to sit back and let it sort of you know, disrupt your portfolio. Well, thank you, Jason. Uh, you know, I think it's important that we cover these downside scenarios, but of course we also want to think about the potential for upside and more positive scenarios. And for that, uh, we're going to have Caroline do the honors. So Caroline, you know, take us through uh, how you want to invest if we are in more of a soft landing scenario. Yeah, sure. So in this scenario, um, it allows equities to move moderately higher over the next six to 12 months. And so within that, I'd like to highlight two specific strategies. Um, the first that you hinted at um, is value. Um, and as you can see on this slide, value has already outperformed growth um, by around 20% year to date at a global level. But when inflation is above 3%, value stocks tend to outperform growth stocks regardless of the stage of the economic cycle. So we do expect value to continue to beat growth. Despite the recent outperformance of value stocks, the valuation of value stocks um, is still pretty attractive. Um, they're trading at about a 50% price to earnings discount to the growth stocks, 
which is compared to their long run average of about a 30% discount. So they are still cheap, even though they have already outperformed. Now, what is in value? It encapsulates assets which are essentially um, undervalued. Some examples would include things like energy equities. Um, at a regional level, it would include things like the UK and Australia. Um, now, energy has had a bit of a pullback um, since early June uh, on increasing recession fears, uh, but we do expect commodity prices to stay high amid the supply challenges that are being faced um, in that area. And we forecast Brent crude oil um, to, to reach about $125 a barrel and stay there for the rest of this year. The UK equity market obviously has a high exposure to commodities, um, and it has also already outperformed global equities uh, probably by around 20% as well year to date, but it's still on a trailing PE of only 11 times, which is a 30% discount to global equities. So that's value. The second strategy that I'd like to focus on um, is security. So this includes food security, um, agricultural yield, for example, within food security, um, energy security, this includes commodities, green tech, clean air, and carbon reduction, cyber security. These are all long-term trends that are driven by the long-term drivers, uh, which have been further accelerated by the war in Ukraine. Should the war escalate, then these particular security themes will likely also continue to move even higher. I think that what you're getting a sense of is that this is a time where, you know, we're not just looking at what's the S&P 500 going to do. We're looking, you, you can't, this is not a time to focus so much on an individual index. You got to look under the hood in equities, for example, to things like value over growth. And you have to look beyond just equities into other ways of de diversifying your capital. And I think, uh, you know, in the final scenario that we hint on, it's a, it's a lower probability, but, you know, we know eventually uh, the markets will find a bottom and will turn around. And so I think it's, it's important to uh, put kind of the long-term and the more uh, rosy uh, picture of the world in its context as well. So, so, Caroline, help us uh, out with the reflation scenario. Sure, yeah. So, under that sort of scenario, um, some specific long-term growth um, themes will, will perform well, private markets as well, good long-term investments. So, as you can see from this slide, um, we are uh, expecting um, automation and robotics, for example, um, to be a continued area of growth within um, the tech space. Obviously, the recent events um, you know, are leading and will continue to lead to greater local production capacity. Um, and the increased digitalization allows uh, a new wave of automation investment. Um, and, and you can see that we think that there's um, some good growth potential, particularly in the robotics market with an addressable market size of um, close to 300 billion dollars. Now, whilst the pressure on the growth stocks is likely to continue in the near term, um, you know, the sell-off that we've had obviously has unveiled some longer-term opportunities. So, um, this is where we can start to um, position for um, the upside when, when it will come. In terms of um, 
private markets, they are a good diversification for long-term growth um, potential. And as you can see on the following slide, um, the returns in private equity, which are shown by the blue bars, are particularly strong, especially relative to listed equities, which are shown by the gray bars, after the listed market has peaked. So um, in the right-hand um, sort of section of the chart, you can see that private equity outperforms the listed equity space by around 10% on average in the period that's one year after the listed market peak. So there are both tactical and obviously lots of structural reasons for gaining exposure to private markets. And we do recommend a diversified approach to private markets as well, the same as we do um, to listed markets. So we would suggest various geographies, various managers, strategies, and vintages. And in particular, at the moment, we think direct lending, core real estate, core infrastructure, um, some areas of green tech look particularly interesting to us at the moment. All right. Well, we have just a minute or two left. Uh, so what I want to say is we approach this period with so much going on with a bit of humility and a scenario approach so we can think about all the range of outcomes and build a robust portfolio. I am so proud of the way that we've developed the CIO team and our capabilities to really have expertise in a broad set of asset classes from uh, you know, derivative structures to private equity to commodities to currencies and of course equities and bonds as well. And we're using all of those to try and protect and grow wealth in this period and you know we would urge you to try and not do this by simply thinking about uh just what are the major indices going to do for the rest of the year we do take questions we have a few we've only got time for one but i'm going to answer it quick can the u.s through pressure on saudi arabia be able to push a drop in the price of oil price of oil weighs heavy in the u.s consumer mindset and inflation today the answer that I'll give just shows you how complex this is. What does Saudi Arabia care about above everything? They care about Iran. So to answer the Saudi, any aspect of this Saudi Arabia question, we have to look to the U.S. policy on Iran and what is going to happen there before and after the midterm elections. So just another level of complexity we're adding into the mix, but we are thinking about these subjects. Well, given the time, we're going to have to end it here. Thank you so much for joining us, and we look forward to answering more of your questions and talking to you again soon next time. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment
investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.